Thanks for joining us on the American Masters podcast, where we pull never-before-heard interviews off the shelf and onto the airwaves. I'm your host, Michael Cantor, executive producer of the long-running PBS documentary series, American Masters. In this episode, we celebrate Gloria Naylor, who died on September 28, 2016, in the Virgin Islands. An award-winning novelist and artist, Naylor was known for her complex depictions of black women, most famously in her novel The Women of Brewster Place, which she described as her love letter to a community of black women in a housing project. In this never-before-heard interview, Naylor speaks with great clarity and passion on her perception of the American dream. Director Michael Epstein and Naylor begin their conversation with Naylor's thoughts on the novel Passing by Nella Larson. First published in 1929, Passing looks at the reunion of two childhood friends named Claire Kendry and Irene Redfield and centers on the theme of racial passing, in which the main character rejects her black identity in order to find a place in a white, high-society community of the 1920s. When I think of the American dream, I think of exclusivity, to be quite honest with you. I think that dream, just like the foundation of America, was only held out to a few, and was only meant for a few. You know, it was meant for the most part for those who had come from Europe, who were landowners, who were part of the aristocracy, who had held to them the promise that they could indeed prosper in this country. The Constitution was not intended for people who were landless, for people who were not male, for people who were not white. You know, this country was just simply not founded that way. We had to have amendments in order to make this democracy more and more inclusive. And so with the American dream as well, it was held out to those who were white, to those who were male for the most part, and others had to fight for inclusion in it. So for you, what is the American dream in your life? Or, or, or the images, the pictures, when somebody says American dream, what are the pictures that pop into the head? The ability to be able to live as a full citizen. When I was coming of age, the dreams that were held out for me to attain were ones of self-actualization. They were not so much succeeding within the society as to succeed within one's own skin and to try to attain a sense of your own full humanity because that was the fight in those years. You know, you were constantly being uh, degraded wherever you looked. There were stereotypes about you, about your culture, about your, your, your social class. And so my parents always sort of reinforced in my sisters and I that you have to set your own standards of excellence. You have to strive to become a full person. It did not reach beyond the self into, let's say, attain, then attaining success within society because it was sort of a given. If you can just first maintain your own humanity, reify your own personal worth, you then flow into the system as an entity. So let me ask you, can you finish this sentence? The, the picture I have of the American dream is, do you have a, a snapshot of it? The any? picture I have of the American dream is one of an illusion. It's one of an illusion uh, that, that's been set out for us and that we have to shape in our own image. You know, it is, it is, it is indeed a dream. A dream is something that, that's ethereal. 
You know, a dream is something that's not really quite there. And when I think of the American dream, that's what I think of, something that is manufactured, something that is ethereal, something that's not quite there. Do you have any sense of the, of the dream in American literature for you and in any books? I mean, the books maybe that we're reading or other books that you know you read as uh, an adult or as an adolescent? I think perhaps of, of the books that we were reading, the one that really stands out the most about the American dream is The Street. I think for that character, Ludie Johnson, she believed the hype. She looked at, at, at the model that was set for the likes of the Ben Franklins of this country. And she felt that, yes, indeed, I can attain that because I am told if I just work hard enough, if I want it badly enough, if I save enough, then I should be able to better myself, which makes perfect sense if you are indeed in the modes of the Ben Franklins. But what Ludie Johnson did not take into account was her race and her sex and her class. You know, and so she did work very hard. She did want things very passionately. She did save and scrape and sacrifice. And she ended up in Harlem running from a murder. Do you think the American dream is a lie? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> definitely, if we want to get real, yeah, let's real. get real. real. <laughs> I definitely think it's a lie. I think it. I think it's part of the the, the same philosophy which flows. That this is a real democracy. You know, this is not true democracy. It's important that this society and any society be ruled by the few, because there was never any trust in the masses. If the American dream, what role does it play then? It. it, it what it helps to do is to keep people calm. It helps to keep a society contained. Because then an individual believes, like the Joads, for example, in The Grapes of Wrath, that if I'm not prospering, if I'm not attaining these things, there's something that I'm not doing. It's not that the society is flawed or that the system is flawed or weighted. It's just that there is something wrong within me. Is a Gatsby-like reinvention of self, in your mind, possible for African Americans? I have seen it happen. There are some African Americans who are today able to quote unquote pass. And they're able to pass into greater, not so much with skin color, but to pass into the, the larger society, but by simply sublimating those things which are considered quote unquote too ethnic or too political. So therefore they aspire to the values of the broader society. They, they try very hard not to stand out as far as the way they look physically, the way they might dress, the language they might speak, the foods they might eat, the values they might hold. Um, and they are acceptable, the Colin Powells of America. It was such a phenomenon to me that Colin Powell was so deeply loved by the American media and actually touted as becoming president. And when you looked at, at the man, you sort of understood what could be more American than someone who was willing to die for this country, you know, than, than a man who was a general, than a man who was that conservative, you know, um, a man who was also fair-skinned, which was extremely important, and who had Republican leanings. So give me a sense then if, 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 if as you sort of, this kind of modern passing that we're talking about, where Colin Powell's not pretending that he's white, but kind of in every other way, frame it for me in uh, Nella Larson's time. She's writing the book in the mid-20s. What are the dynamics of uh, access to the American dream, if you 
Uh, well, in, in those years, the access was through the color of the skin. To, to even have um, a hope at, at running the race, although, like I've already said, the race cannot be won, but even the hope of running the race, you had to be white to enter. So in those years, what a person did who had that complexion was simply then assume the mantle of whiteness to have a chance at the game. Uh, today, you no longer need to assume that mantle of whiteness as far as the skin color, as long as you assume certain values and certain political um, stances, and you don't make waves. So let's talk about the book. Um, why do you think, why do you think uh, Larson starts passing with that sweltering, sweltering summer heat? It, I think it starts with that sweltering kind of heat because that symbolizes the oppressiveness of the society in which the Irenes of the world lived. And Irene was a middle-class black, you know, who sent, who was talking of sending her children to Europe. And, and they, they took summer vacations out in Martha's Vineyard and this sort of thing. And um, yet and still, what she was oppressed by was the color of her skin. So she had to worry about whether or not when she was taking a nice tea at the top of this very fancy hotel, whether or not she would be embarrassed and shuffled out. Hey, let's, let's, if I can, because one of the things I want to do is always kind of help us with the narrative. Mm -hmm. How does Irene escape the heat? Irene passes. <laughs> That's right. Irene, uh, she doesn't announce that she is white, but she doesn't deny it either. So she just simply, she, she goes up, she, she's fair enough to pass as white, and she sits there, and she just simply pretends. And that, that's what Claire brought out to her later in the book. You have, when it has been convenient for you, you have indeed passed. I just did it for higher stakes. So they're on the roof of the Drayton, kind of the Drake Hotel, and Irene kind of sees this woman looking at her. And she's afraid that maybe there's a white woman who has recognized that she is black and that she's about to be accosted. And then you have this whole wave of emotion that flashes through her, you know, first there's anger, then embarrassment. And then she steals herself for what she thinks is an impending confrontation. And that shows you it's quite a way to live, is it not? Irene is not able to just move as herself as a human being throughout that society. She has to always be second-guessing herself. Um, so it's, a, it's two African-American in a day, they, two Negro women meeting at the top of the, being who they are. They're both pretending, I guess, on the top of that hotel. Oh, yeah, well, definitely. Well, with Claire Kendry, her entire life has become a lie. You know, she is living as a white woman. She has married a man who is a racist, a white man who is a racist. So she, every day of her life, she must live a lie. And I think as far as an artistic choice, that was an interesting one that Larson made because she could have married a, a, a man who was a libertarian. Could have been quite possible. But she had her marry a racist, which is, which is, is to show how oppressive it must be for that woman to hear these things about herself each day of her life from this man who hated black people. Um, what's, what's Larson trying to say here in that, that moment about money and passing and, and, and access? That basically that in order to attain Claire's concept of the American dream, which is the attaining of materialism, that she is willing to make any sacrifice to go beyond the sacrifices that are even laid out in the mandate, which, which are hard work and thrift, she's actually willing to sacrifice her own psyche 
in order to attain material things, in order to attain a certain amount of psychological freedom, because that's all she's getting is basically, basically psychological freedom, because she came from a milieu where she could have married a, a black doctor or a black lawyer. Those were the people that, that, that she moved among. She could have married, Irene's husband was wealthy. You know, he could have put her up um, well as far as material things. But I think Claire Kendry was after something else, and I've often wondered about that with this book. It must have been that she wanted the psychological freedom to move within American society and to be considered a human being. Because even the wealthiest black was not considered the equal of the poorest white. It's interesting that you say psychological freedom, because to me, when I read the book, I don't see Claire as having any, I think she's psychologically tormented. Do you see her, you don't see her as psychologically tormented? I, I see her as, as being drawn back to her own roots, definitely, yeah. Why? Yeah, because one must be what one is. You know, at, at some point you want to just breathe free and to truly be yourself. It's the same thing with, 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 with people who are homosexual and who are in the closet. There's a point when you just want to simply not have to guard every word, guard every gesture, but to simply be oneself. And, and that's what Claire Kendry gives up. So in a sense, she is in a psychological cage. But then there are other times in her life when she can be in the rooftop of fancy hotels and not have to worry, you know, when she can go into stores. But they don't really do much. When you think about it, it's, it's a very prescribed world that, that these women move in. It's a world of shopping and of tea parties and cocktail parties and, and of, of second homes. So that, that's why I kept saying to myself, what is it that she wanted that she couldn't have attained if she stayed in the black bourgeoisie? And that is that freedom to be white. I, I think, yeah, that, that freedom once you move in the outside society, yeah. You know, we're also thinking of the great Gatsby. Do you see any similarity between Claire going back and Gatsby going back? I mean, here, they're both characters that reinvent themselves. And what do they do? They go home. They go home, yeah. Because that, 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 that's where you get your, your basic freedom from. Except that the Gatsby doesn't quite go home because Gatsby reinvented himself from the time he was 12 years old when he left the Midwest. You know, he, he had been the, the, the child of farmers, I believe, failed farmers, and he left. But he goes back to that moment in his life when he was a young army officer, and he could have married Daisy Buchanan. You know, so he returns, I, I think, to her in that sense. He doesn't go all the way back. What Claire Kendry does is that she literally wants to go back into the black world of the black bourgeoisie and to just move among these people and, and be there. What I think both authors are showing is that these characters being drawn back to their past ultimately leads to their destruction. If they had stayed there in the first place, perhaps that's where true happiness would have lain. So there's a sort of cautionary tale, I think, in both of those books. It seems almost to me, uh, to this point exactly that you're making, that if you choose to reinvent yourself, you know... It's a price to pay. I think because each author is, is saying to their character and to the audience is that what these individuals were after was shallow. They were after something that they could not truly attain or even more importantly, that they probably should not have wanted. You know, Claire should not have wanted to move in the white world. She should have wanted perhaps to stay where she was, to thrive and be fruitful within her own race. Gatsby should not have wanted to move into this very shallow world 
uh, of the wealthy and accepted there in East Egg. He should have perhaps thrived where he was. So let me ask you then, as a reader, do you have any understanding, any empathy for Claire or for Gatsby? Of course I do. I, I do because what can we attain to except what we are given? You know, you have a, a child that comes up and they look at the world and they're told, if you are white and blue-eyed and blonde-haired, you will be a happy little girl. And if you are not that kind of little girl, if you have no alternative message, then you are going to believe that those are the values that will make you happy. And if you look around the world where you live in and you see that little blonde-haired, blue-eyed girls move with freedom, are considered pretty, are allowed to go to certain colleges, to certain stores, to live in certain neighborhoods, well, then society is saying to you, that's what you should uh, aspire to. Really? So therefore, the, I don't think that Claire had much choice. I have sympathy for Claire because she wasn't given by her country an alternative way to believe that she could be happy. Yeah, I have sympathy for Claire for that reason. I don't have sympathy for Claire because she could have stayed within her own race and found a sense of freedom and worth if she had worked for it. The author purposely put her in hell, you know, and because the author wanted to say, this is not the path to go. And this is the extreme price that you pay if you choose the path of reinventing yourself for gain. Um, I'm gonna ask one last question about this book. Um, you know, when, I, when we selected this book, a lot of people didn't know the novel. Um, mm -hmm. And um, I guess the question I have for you then is, do you think the book's then lost its relelevance? Is that? That's a good question. Um, I, mean, I think you have reading? to take, it's oh, it's definitely worth reading at, to, to understand a bit about the history of race relations in this country. Definitely it's worth reading. I think that the, the whole, the, the concept of passing into white society is more refined now. And one must make the intellectual leap to understand that passing is still possible, but it's no longer so much the color of one's skin as it is what's inside of one's head. If you're willing to whiten inside of your head, you are fine. Just to sort of shift gears if we can. So what does something like the event like the Depression do to the American dream? I think the Depression came, it came the closest to dis actually destroying the um, illusion of the American dream. Because what the people saw in mass is that with all of their hard work, with all of their sacrifice, they, they were getting poorer and poorer. And that perhaps this country was not about succeeding on one's own worth. Perhaps this country was about big business and big interest, and that those were the only people who were prospering. I mean, and that, that's why the C Communist Party was flourishing so much during the Depression, because people began to actually have, this is the average man, the one who must be contained, the one who must be propagandized, the average man began to question whether or not America was really working for them. It seems to me that it's the idea that hard work guarantees you nothing. That, well, that's what the Depression kind of showed, Would that you? hard work guaranteed you nothing. Hard work is supposed to guarantee you a modicum of comfort. 
You're supposed to do that. You're, suppo you're supposed to be able to buy the little house, to have a little dog outside, the 2.7 children, and to go about and live your life and not worry about the bigger picture, not worry about the fact that the politics of the country are for the big interest, that, that, that the whole foreign policy of the country are for the big interest, that your sons die for big interest. Now, what happened with the Depression is that people were not even able to attain the modicum that they had worked for. Is it a dry, unimpassioned, removed reporting of the facts? Definitely not. My goodness, it is an extremely passionate novel. And the way it's constructed sort of reveals the author's passion. Because The Grapes of Wrath, in some chapters, becomes very close to being an essay. You know, because what you have is Steinbeck with the large picture of the fact that the American dream does not work. And then you have the Joads, who are his examples of how it does not work. And Steinbeck is extremely angry about the fact that the common man who is striving very hard, who wants so very little, is not even able to attain that little if it backs up against the interest of the banks and of the big landowners. You know, and that's what The Grapes of Raft, I think, is basically about, is about watching these people try to simply live, who are asking for little. They are not angry people. They are not revolutionaries. They're not sophisticated. They, they simply want to farm. They're tenant farmers. They simply want to go out, bust their butts every day, and get a small return, and then pass that on to their children. And even that, under certain circumstances, is asking too much if you're going to inopportune the banking interest. And that's what made Steinbeck so furious. It's interesting. One of the things we talked about is that the Jodes seem to define themselves by work. Definitely by work. That, that's, that, that's what makes a man. And that's what makes a man is being able to go out there and to feel that soil and to create the corn and to create the cotton. And what makes a woman is to be able to, to put her hands into the dough and to feed her family and to sew the clothes and to clean the house. That defined them as people. And they asked for nothing else. This is sort of the, the, the pathos in that book. They wanted nothing else. They did not even aspire for their children to go to college. They wanted to pass on the land and that kind of work to their children. So when the oh. Jodes are denied work, what happens to their soul? It doesn't disappear. Because another message, I think, in this book is about the tenacity of the human spirit. But it definitely begins to shrivel up and to be transformed. And you see people who were just plain ordinary people become people who are somewhat bitter. And, and a few of their, their element even become a little political. So let's go back to just the author for a second. You, know, you were talking about this book, that it's, and it is in passion. What sense do you get of Steinbeck and how he must have approached his desk every morning when you read his words? I would say that he probably had to rein himself in a great deal to keep from becoming too didactic that he had to just simply allow these people to evolve and to be. I, I really wonder if Steinbeck wanted them to, to come out in the end as quote unquote good as they came out, because they still come out with their humanity intact and with, with that ability to even nurture and to help someone of their own kind. They come out looking quite noble. I can 
believe, given his own political leanings, that he probably would have wanted them, just as the writer, to have uh, ended up like the preacher, somehow enlightened about the, the true structure of American society and American economy, and somehow more militant. But as a good writer, which Steinbeck is, he allowed his characters to evolve in their own way. And these people were not the kind of people who were going to join the Communist Party. Do you think that Steinbeck's writing is overwhelmed by his anger? No, I, 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 I don't think, I think he walks a fine line in this book. I myself read the anger in between the lines of the book. But I think where he goes off into these editorial forays, often um, you're walking a very fine line. Of being, of being too didactic and of just letting your art tell the story itself. Because the Joads themselves, you see, sometimes what you do is that you get a, if you're impassioned about something, you get a tiny bit afraid that maybe the characters won't convey it all. And, and so you want to nudge them a little bit. And, and, but yet Steinbeck allowed these people just simply to be, their story is evocative enough. It truly does say what, what he wants to say is that, and what he's saying is that people, it's just not fair. That's what he's saying, yeah. Help me understand the beginning of the book. Paint a picture for me as this, this beautiful, well, just, you know, how does that big portrait of this thing open up? The environment, the description of the environment, which is to foretell what's going to happen in, in the whole novel itself. So you open up with the land not being able to nurture the corn that the rain comes, but it doesn't penetrate the earth. You have the dry wind that's blowing the corn down and drying up the young stalks. You have this sense of oppressiveness and sterility, and above all, I think, futility, that even nature itself is futile and unable to flourish. And then slowly, what's moving from the horizon are these big tractors. And what these tractors are coming to do is to destroy the homes of the sharecroppers and to put in a huge agribusiness. Why? Because it, was not, it, it is more profitable for the stockholders to have an agribusiness than to have the tenant farmers there. So give me a sense of how you, that first moment when you see the whole family, what you think of the Joes. What you see people trying to do physically is to save bits and scraps of their life and to move on with it. And so they're deciding, what do I take? What do I leave? Do I take the little China dog? Do I take the letter my brother wrote me just before he died? What won't overload the truck as we try to move on with our lives? So you have this overwhelming picture of people just sorting through the little scraps and mementos of their lives, getting ready to leave that. Gut-wrenching. Yeah. Um, that they can't even take their life. They have to leave even memories, I guess. Yes, they have to leave memories. The fact that she didn't want to take the letter that her brother wrote just before he died. Yeah, that there wouldn't be enough space for that. But do you think that the Joads share Steinbeck's anger? I know the Joads don't share Steinbeck's anger. What, the, what you see the Joads doing and what this book becomes is a sort of quest for one's humanity. And that humanity is equated to having some kind of substantial work. So what the Joads are, keep moving from place to place to place, looking for a chance to work, looking for a chance to be human. 
They don't blame the banks in the East. They don't blame the stockholders. They don't blame the huge farm owners. The Joes don't blame anyone. They don't really even blame themselves. What they feel is that they haven't tried hard enough. So you move a little further. You try a little harder. You know, you just simply, you try for that one day to make that one meal. And when you think about it, what else could they do, given the kind of people they were? They were not people with a big picture. You, I don't believe in that whole novel they ever once picked up a newspaper, even. Do you think that they see themselves outside of the American dream? I don't think that the Jodes, if we, see, because you asked in the beginning, how do I even define the American dream? And I gave you my definition. If we just look at the, the overall sort of pat definition of the American dream, which is if you work hard enough, want it badly enough, save enough, that you will indeed prosper. Um, I don't think the Jodes even had that large a vision. I think what the Jodes wanted to do were to wake up in the morning, to feel that they have had a productive day when they go to bed that night. That's what they want. They want to be able to provide for their families for that day. And, and that, that, that's where Steinbeck's rage comes in, because they are denied even that. They are not allowed to be human beings. For more on the American dream, check out WNET's multi-platform initiative, Chasing the Dream, Poverty and Opportunity in America, featuring documentaries and special reports on both the causes of poverty and the creation of jobs and opportunities at all levels in our society at pbs.org slash chasing the dream. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher for future episodes. And visit the American Masters website at pbs.org slash American Masters for digital archive gems, past episodes, and more. You can also find American Masters on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Tumblr, and YouTube. We'll be back in two weeks for our next episode of the American Masters podcast.